Bondi a button. <laughs> you were saying? Welcome to episode 96 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight I am joined by the guy who is just got back from some international travels from the exotic location of southwestern Ontario. We could also call him Canadarren now because of that. I am joined by Darren Weeks, my awesome Civil War nerd co-host, and I am... Hello, just... thanks for having me aboard, Mary. Hey, great to be back. <laughs> I am just Mary. Shocked you haven't changed your name to Gordy. Ah, uh, you know, too many Gordys up there anyway. What's going <laughs> We're on? Gonna what's, what's... We're going to alienate our Canadian listeners now with the, the stereotypes oh, okay. of Gordy and Aid living in igloos and stuff. Yeah. Be like, um, be like the you know Canadian bacon part two or something like that. Yeah. But what's going on? We ha- we've had a great long night already today, Mary. We had our book yeah. club earlier today with um with our friend Cal Schoonover, whose mm-hmm. book on uh, Wisconsin and Tina was great. And we like him. He's a Red Sox fan and a Patriot fan. And well, he likes Notre Dame. So as Meatloaf once said, two out of three ain't bad. So we'll, we'll, let, we'll let it go. But but uh, but that was a good time. His book was great. A lot of people came out for that. But that was that was a lot of fun. But now we are back in the saddle yep. after our last Halloween episode to talk about a battle that I know is very near and dear to your heart, yes. which is the Battle of Ringgold Gap. Yep. But before we get started, since you didn't ask, I'm going to ask you, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, my God. Well, I didn't even get a chance because, I mean, I thought I was the host. But anyway, so tonight I am drinking, um, it is like a peanut butter IPA from from Knockabout, which is a local brewer here. Um, it's on Cape Cod. And I'm drinking it out of my general Grant mug because Grant is sort of involved with Ringgold Gap, but not really. And plus, I didn't have a Pat Claiborne mug. So that's why I had to choose general Grant tonight. And what are you uh, drinking? Oh, thanks for asking, Mary. I, I never thought you'd ask. I am drinking the same beer you are from Knockabout. Um, peanut butter fluff I double IPA, which actually sounds horrific, but it's really, really it's good. It's so good. And since we talked about Antietam earlier, I yeah. still have my mug, my Antietam coffee mug. So we, that is still going from today. So anywho, Mary, we're going to talk a little bit about the Battle of Ringgold Gap today. Yeah. And and for people who study the Chickamauga-Chattanooga campaign, it's kind of that nexus point where Chattanooga ends and the Atlanta campaign begins. Yeah. And it's one that I think is not studied enough. We're going to talk a no. lot about the, the generals in charge, specifically about one Patrick Claiborne. Yeah. We're going to talk about I him mean, he, I mean, he's got a lot of great moments in the Civil War, but this might be one of his, his greater moments. The thing about Ringgold Gap is it, it never seems to get lumped in with the battles for Chattanooga, and then it's still not part of the Atlanta campaign, really. But I consider it to be one of the battles for Chattanooga. I don't know. Just when you study it and look at it, it's just it's kind of that end piece to it all. Because when, you know, the Battle of Missionary Ridge ends, Bragg is not completely gone. He's still deciding, well, what the hell do I do I need to do? And I think having Ringgold Gap included in those those battles, which includes Lookout Mountain, Missionary Ridge, and then finally, as we know now the Battle of Ringgold Gap, it's three separate battles that right. the, the Union ultimately secures the city of Chattanooga, which as we talked about before, Chattanooga is very important for them to have because it's a railway hub, it's got the river there. And since the Battle of Chickamauga, they've kind of been in this like almost like kind of not really a stalemate, but it's almost a siege, but not really at all. And that's what's happened leading up to the Battle of Ringgold Gap is the battles for Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, which are fought November 24th and 25th, 1863. And they are Union victories. Um, But, you know, Missionary Ridge, as we talked about in our episodes, it's not Grant and Sherman's finest moment thomas is thomas and his guys are the ultimate heroes here i think that they are the ones that take missionary ridge but they have quite a fight in doing that and and it's joseph hooker who who takes lookout mountain um which was a good victory for the union to see that 
the American flag planted up on Lookout Mountain again. It's kind of Joe Hooker's redemption, but as we're going to see with this episode, uh, things do not go well for Joe Hooker. Yeah, and you and you and we did we did do a full episode, a two episode part on Chattanooga Mayor. I refer you to that episode if you've forgotten what the mood should strike. You can go back and refresh, refresh yourself with that. But suffice it to say, Chattanooga was a bad three day experience for Bragg, who likely left a horrific Yelp review when he probably left. I have to imagine he probably did. And upon his zero, retreat, zero out of ten would not recommend. Where's Chattanooga ever? He's going to retreat at the hands of that combined Union armies led by William Rosecrans and eventually U.S. Grant. Mm -hmm. So by November 26th of 1863, you know, Bragg's army was beaten uh, after being forced to retreat from George Thomas's uh, army at Missionary Ridge and Joseph Hooker, as you said, at Lookout Mountain. Now, for Bragg at this point, it's going to be fight or flight. But you know, his only real option was to flight into GTFO, uh, get that army of Tennessee out of the state of Tennessee and move his army to a place called Dalton, Georgia, mm -hmm. where specifically behind these really strong defensive location in a place called Rocky Face Ridge. So he wants to get down there, kind of lick his wounds a little bit. I mean, it's called a retreat, but really it's a run for your life situation. Yeah, is kind it of is. What it was. And I mean, really at this time, like we all know, like, you know, there's not much campaigning that happens in winter and winter is, you know, setting in even in, in this area in the South. And, you know, like Bragg's army of Tennessee is not in great shape at all. Like they've been on half rations and there's something that happens that I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes that really pisses some of the men in his army off um, when this does happen. But like, you know, they've been on half rations. They're starving. Bragg's been, uh, he's been executing a few people as well. Um, so I, I doubt if he's very popular with the troops, um, but I think it was Montgomery Meggs who said that, you know, regarding the Union victory, he said the slave aristocracy is broken down. Chattanooga is the grandest stroke yet for our country. So that's how important this is for the Union to have. Now, the Union Army, they're in okay shape, but they've been on short rations too for quite a while. But then that cracker line breaks when, when Sherman gets there. So things are a little bit better for them, but they're still not great. And going into the Battle of Ringgold Gap, you got to remember both sides have been fighting it out for, you know, November 24th, 25th, they've been fighting hard. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, people think these these retreats are so orderly. This was so confusing. A lot, you know, Even a lot of, of Claiborne's subordinates didn't even know what was going on. No. States' rights gist, the guy who hated Claiborne, which I've had the reason I know we're going to talk about here in a little while. I'm not a fan of him. Uh, certainly, you know, he, he had no idea what the orders were. Um, he had just had actually disappeared. Mm -hmm. uh, and his colonels were kind of left to figure out on their own what the hell the deal is. So to cover this retreat from this pursuing Union army, Bragg is going to need a general who's going to buy time because what he really cares about is getting his army, but more specifically, those those vital supply wagons. Yep. He needs to get them safely that Dalton, Georgia, I mentioned. And it's about 30 miles or so to the southeast of Chattanooga. So the general who Bragg is going to entrust uh, with really the existence of his entire army is the Irish-born Kentucky, Ar Arkansas via Ohio, Patrick Claiborne. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked a lot about Claiborne, so we aren't going to rehash his whole story, but but Claiborne was a fighter and so, someone who, although he was an immigrant, was 100% invested in that Confederate cause. Yep. And he quickly established himself as one of the very best officers in Bragg's army, if not the entire Confederacy. So to that end, Bragg is going to instruct Claiborne, who was protecting the army's rear guard, to set up a defensive line uh, and, and the place they chose to defend, it was a town called Ringgold, Georgia. Now, 
it was almost exactly halfway between Chattanooga and Dalton. Yeah. So it's 30 miles. Guess what? 15 miles almost yeah. exactly, right? So and he's going to need, he needs really a solid defensive place he can defend because he knows that whoever's guarding this is going to be really outmanned. So he needs a strong place. Now, Claiborne is a soldier's soldier. But as the war went on, he really became a thinking man soldier. And he, we talked about this earlier, right? Yeah, he evolved this, so much from like, from how he is at Shiloh to how he is at Ringgold Gap. He's, you know, like I said today, I, I tweeted earlier, like he's a completely different beast to what he was uh, at Shiloh. But you think about like the thing with Claiborne is he learned and he evolved like after Shiloh he recognized the fact like wow if I'd had sharpshooters I might have been able to take out that Union artillery so what does he do he trains some of his men to be sharpshooters and as we're going to see in Ringgold Gap he recognized parts of Ringgold Gap that were kind of like Missionary Ridge that had been mistakes for him and he was not even a day later recognized like well I'm not about to repeat the same thing so he is constantly like like learning and evolving and he's he's a changed guy I think from what he was at the beginning of the civil war at the battle of Shiloh. he is we've talked a lot about you know knowing when to hold him no one to fold him we've yeah. talked throughout this whole thing he's a guy who was very impulsive a very go-go guy but by the time he gets to ringgold he knows what he has to do he has to play defense it's... he has to be smart he has to be the smart the smart kid in the room here because he doesn't know who's coming at him he doesn't know how many are coming at him but he knows that his army to his division there is going to be entrusted to save the army no matter what happens. So when he's heading out of Chattanooga after his fight at Missionary Ridge, and, and you know he had that unfortunate task of you know telling his starving, hungry men that yeah, we have all these food supplies we can't carry, so you're yeah. going to have to help me burn them. Yeah, the Orphan Brigade, it's General Joseph Lewis and his Kentucky Orphan Brigade that that they're tasked with having to burn all these supplies and this is after the men have been on half rations but Bragg his administration was just so shitty at you know they couldn't get them the food and look how close it was to them like it was it was right there and these are guys that are living off like you know I read one account where it's like they were using like making coffee out of corn or something like oh, that yeah. like but, but they're, that. they're like, emptying no. their haversacks they're filling yeah. them up with bacon and hardtack yeah. just imagine you with the you know the, the bar leaves a door open at the end of the night you're rushing oh across all the ideas but but that's kind of how it is these guys are like they're grabbing it but then they have to burn it yeah. and, and and we talk about claiborne's judgment so once this whole thing gets going a good example of that judge that we talked about it really and how we really evolved occurred that really may have saved his entire army now just a few miles uh on their way towards uh, towards Ringgold, a staff a staff officer is going to ride up with him with orders from the boss, his boss William mm -hmm. Hardy. Yeah, and the orders are to abandon the rear guard and head to the town Grayville because the rumor is that's where Sherman's going, right? So Claiborne is going to give him that same stunned look, um, basically kind of like when you know when the beer's gone. What do you mean, <laughs> right? That that type of look, and it turns and he's going to question this officer really you know cross-examine saying are you sure this is what he says yeah and the officer goes you know what i the staff guy goes i haven't really slept in two days so i'm not really sure that's what he means so i don't know and so um claiborne is for the first time in this campaign is going to take the orders and rip them up and say i ain't doing it yeah. he's going to say no and if he did follow those orders Bragg's army gets destroyed. That's the, yeah. the story here. But this is the first example where he takes his own personal initiative and looks at the order and goes, that isn't right. So basically, you know, around 10 o'clock at night here on the 26th of November, 
Claiborne's division is going to arrive on the north bank of East Chickamauga Creek. He's got 4,200 men, give or take, plus or minus. Mm -hmm. He's got brigades commanded by Colonel Daniel Govan, who's in charge of St. John uh, Richards's uh, Liddell's brigade, right? Hiram Granberry, his Texans. Yep. He's got Lucius Polk, and he's got Mark Laurie, uh, and he's got some artillery, uh, primarily Semper's Alabama artillery, who's going to be commanded by a guy named Lieutenant Richard Goldthwait, we'll talk about, okay? Yep. Now, Claiborne, he had his he has these orders and it specifically says you need to cross the creek ASAFP. And what you need to do is you need to put that creek between you and the pursuing Union Army, because we know they're coming, and get some rest until the next morning and then get ready to go. But it's late November, just like it is here yeah. in the creek. I don't know if you know this, Mayor, but water gets cold when it's cold out. Really? So Does this, it freeze this, with ice? If sometimes it freezes, sometimes it becomes wow. even a semi-solid. Okay. Seen that before. Oh, God. But this is what's happening with the creek. The creek is running high. It's chest deep and there's ice on top of it. And it's freaking cold. So he decides, Claiborne tells his men, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to rest on this side. We're not crossing tonight. Tomorrow morning, early, I'm going to send men over there to light some campfires. I'm going to get some marshmallows. We're going to do s'mores, the whole deal. <laughs> but tomorrow morning, we're going to cross. And then before you go, we're going to warm up by those fires. Because if, I, if you go, if you cross this water now and you go to bed, you're going to freeze to death, one hundred percent. And Claiborne says that, and so he he's going to risk his entire division and put them to bed on the, the dangerous side of the creek. And that's again part of that judgment we talked about. Yeah. Okay, so really, that's for the second time now. Claiborne is going to kind of disobey these orders. He's going to use his own judgment that really saves his men from sickness and or death or yeah. both, and and that's going to be a big deal. And a few hours later, he's going to have a couple of his aides. He's going to set up those big bonfires we talked about yeah. on the other side of Chickamauga Creek. It's around 2, 2.30 in the morning now on the 27th of November. Claiborne's going to sound reveille. He's going to have his men cross that creek up to their chest in that freezing cold water. And then once they cross there, they're going to have these big warm fires ready for them. Yeah. And they're going to dry off and they're going to be ready to go. And at this point in some of the soldier diaries, Claiborne, they could tell Claiborne wanted to fight. Claiborne was itching for a fight and his men knew it. One of his soldiers wrote down in his memoirs, something is going to happen. You could see the war in General Claiborne's eyes. That's yeah. what they said. Yeah, he, So he, he was I mean, fired he was up. A, and he, he was, yeah, I think he was a pretty quiet individual, but when he got fired up, he was, you know, you could tell he was ready to go in for the fight, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the thing and is, so, he's been tasked with something gigantic as well. Like, hey, the, 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 let me finish up the quote first because it's true. But the men realize what he did. He goes on. He writes. He writes because they see that cold water. And he writes, the water was thin sheets and crystals of ice were dancing over the water. But thoughtful old Pat had big fires on the south side, and we warmed some but dried a little. So they appreciated that. Mm -hmm. And you always got to appreciate the boss. Oh well, big time. Yeah, like mm -hmm. doing that. Like, oh my, I can't imagine doing that. I mean. <laughs> I'm freezing right now, so I like I would love a nice warm fire. <laughs> mm, tell me about it. So, but Claiborne again, he doesn't know exactly. He's still got those communication issues, those orders. He's confused. Yeah, he's going to get the orders verbally, and, and basically he that they to go into Ringgold at this point, and he's going to say, "I want these in writing because I'm not sure who the hell I'm believing anymore." So the courier is going to be sent back to Bragg for confirmation. He goes, "Go get this and go get this in writing." The courier. 
and we talked we talked about the story earlier about this whole story irving yeah irving buck goes who's like yeah yeah he's when you read about claiborne buck's name comes up a lot because he's actually one of our our sources for for patrick claiborne um in the historical record but he goes to bragg's headquarters for additional instructions instructions and bragg is like buck's basically like holy shit this guy's really high strung today i mean can't blame him right but i guess he like takes buck's hands and his and he's like all freaking out and he's like tell general claiborne to hold his position at all hazards and keep back the enemy until the artillery and transportation of the army is secure the salvation of which depends on him this is general bragg's help me obi-wan you're my only hope moment that's he does. exactly he grabs, what that's he grabs yeah. buck's hands they said that you know buck had said that he got there and bragg was bouncing off the walls he was he was going yep. and, and and he says he also finishes the order he says he goes. He must be punished until our trains in in the in the rear of our troops are get well advanced. And he basically, to, like you just said, Obi Wan, you're our only hope. And that's literally not literally, but figuratively what he yep. said anyway. Which means so that the, Braxton Bragg is like Princess Leia. Well, he knows he's vulnerable. Exactly. <laughs> Picture <laughs> that one. <laughs> there you go. Well, so now Clayburn, with these written orders in his hands, and he knows what he's doing now. He's going to act very quickly. And once his division was all across that creek we talked about. Claiborne is going to personally reconnoiter that pass that Bragg had ordered him to want to hold. And this, of course, is going to be Ringgold Gap. Now, Claiborne is going to arrive in the small town of Ringgold, which had a population of around 2,000 or so. He's going to get there just after dawn on the 27th. The town was at the foot of a pair of rises. Now, just east of the town is a place called White Oak Mountain, which stood about 350 feet high. Okay, Just south of White Oak was a place called Taylor's Ridge which stood a little taller to about 400 feet. In between was a narrow gap about a half a mile wide and an opening to the west with a one acre of flat, solid ground. If you see the movie 300, this is this is the Gringle yeah. Gap of Thermopylae. Yeah, That's these what guys this are was. like the 300. And so Claiborne's going to scout the ground. He's going to immediately begin to position his four, those 4,200 men in a way that would hide them in, those, in a really thinly wooded area around Ringgold. Now, Claiborne is a def- is an offensive guy, so he's playing defense now. He what he does, he hides his men and he positions them almost perfectly. He's also going to have two Napoleons at the mouth of the gap of the, that's gonna, he's going to cover with branches and hide them to conceal them from the approaching Union troops right at the mouth of the gap. Now, the way he's going to place these guys is really really smart because you talk about strong interior lines, moving yeah. guys around, and that's what he does. Mm-hmm. Think Gettysburg with the Union, the fish hook. That's yeah. kind of what he does with this. He's going to basically take Hiram Granberry's Texans, who's going to basically he's going to take them over the he's Granberry's take over the brigade from James Smith. Yeah, I remember he was shot in both legs of Missionary Ridge Smith. Yeah, he was he's not around anymore. Yeah, he's not able to function. <laughs> but he's going to take them and he's going to put them at the base of White Oak Mountain. He's going to take a regiment from Mark Lowry's brigade, that's 16th Alabama, under the command of a guy named Frederick Ashford. Mm-hmm. He's going to put them on top of Taylor's Ridge, that higher of the two slopes just south of Ringgold Gap. He's going to position the rest of Lowry's brigade, guys from Alabama, Mississippi for the most part, along with old friend Lucius Polk. Yep, His nephew brigade of the bishop. Will, be, will be behind the gap. So there, there's your reserves. There's that interior lines. I mentioned Daniel Govan. He's going to be there. This is Liddell's four men. Govan's guys are going to be inside the gap, and they're going to place those two Napoleons from Thomas Hotchkiss's battalion, that Semple's Alabama battery we talked about, under the command of Richard Goldthwaite, 
right at the entrance of the roads. You can see where this is going. Oh, it's this is this is this is a this is a bad day for mother. Whoever walks through here, <laughs> someone's going to get surprised. Someone's going to get themselves in a lot of trouble. But here's <laughs> but Claiborne is. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Claiborne also has two hundred cavalry horsemen, and he puts them in front of the town of Ringgold with strict orders. You know what the orders are? He says, the second you see Union troops, I want you to get seen. And then I want you to freak out and run like hell. Yep. Like a bat out of hell. It all goes back to Meatloaf, yep. Mary. And run back through that gap. Because at the first sign of Union troops, we want to see that them to think we're in complete disarray. Yep. And he's also going to instruct the locals in town that if any Union soldier comes up to you and says, have you seen any Rebs? Say, oh, they were here, but they they were all messed up. They ran like hell. They panicked through the gap. They were a complete, complete mess. Yeah. So everybody was in on it. Uh, so by the time you get to early on November 27th, this, this is that morning now, Claiborne's guys are set up in that, def- in that defensive position, that fantastic ground. And we're sitting waiting for those Union troops, just like that meme with the guy with the tree rubbing yep, his hands. Exactly. That's, That's exactly, Claiborne. That's exactly what he's doing right now. So the trap was at was set at this point, and they were waiting for some unlucky yeah. union troops to come bumbling through there yeah and that's what happens at 6 a.m on november the 27th uh general hooker is gonna order general i think it's peter osterhaus to lead the assault well, well let's set the stage was coming yeah okay so just oh, so right, we know yes. so we, you, so you mentioned yeah. <laughs> so joseph hooker you know he's coming out now joseph hooker now he fought at lookout mountain yeah but this was his real first battle since you know since chancellorsville mm-hmm. So we talk about proving yourself and redeeming yourself on a lot of these these things we do. Yep. This is a case that he probably was. He's going to have two divisions, and it's going to be led by uh, our old friend, you know, um, uh, the first division, the 15th Corps. This is the Prussian Peter Osterhaus, yep. which some people say Oosterhaus. We talked about it the other night, right? Uh, and in the second division, the 12th Corps, led by the six foot six, two hundred and sixty pound linebacker general from Pennsylvania, John Geary. Yeah, these are all Gettysburg guys because he's got uh, he's got mm-hmm. uh, David Ireland with him as well. And you know the guys from Gettysburg are all here. Okay. He's got sixteen thousand men. Yeah. Sixteen now this is they're not all gonna get there, but sixteen thousand men versus forty two hundred, yeah. which is almost four to one. So just after six o'clock in the morning on the twenty seventh, Joseph Hooker is going to arrive in Ringgold, and which is about a half a mile north of Ringgold Gap, and right on cue, that cavalry sees them. They are spotted. They run like hell. Yep. They ride off like they were shot out of a cannon. That's how fast these guys all took off. <clears throat> um, also right on cue, the locals start telling Hooker's men what's going on. Yeah, they they basically said they looked totally whipped. They were demoralized. They were in bad shape. You know, it looks like a jet fan on a Monday morning. They were completely, <laughs> completely miserable, right? So everything, both of these events worked. The cavalry and the town worked. And what Hooker did, it completely rope-a-doped him. Now, don't forget, too, Hooker is aggressive. Very... And he wants to redeem himself. Yeah, he's still and, riding that moment, off that lookout mountain as well, that, right? you know, the victory there. And he's like, I'm going to get myself another victory. So, of course, he's going to be aggressive mm-hmm. here and you know the way he's being kind of like you know if it were me and i'm riding on my horse through the near empty streets of ringgold on that morning i would be like this seems a little suspicious but then again if i'm joseph hooker i might be like this is setting up perfectly oh. for something but he's he's he wants to redeem himself he's still butthurt over chancellorsville yeah. he, he is 
but he's impulsive, he's aggressive, and, and he, it's going to play into it. So Hooker, as we know, he famously peed down his leg in Chancellorsville. Everybody knows a story yeah. with him. But this is his chance to really, to really kind of make his name again. So despite the fact that none of his artillery is there yet, despite the fact he only has one division, Ostrovs, uh, on the field at this moment, yeah. Gary's not there yet. Hooker is going to go Leroy Jenkins. He yeah. thinks he has the Confederates on the run. He doesn't need the artillery. He doesn't need another infantry division. He doesn't need a stinking badges. He doesn't need anything. He's going in, and that's what he's going to do. He thinks that this gap is lightly defended. This is going to be this is going to be shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. So, just west of White White uh, West White Oak Mountain stands Ringgold Depot, right, which stands near the Western and Atlantic Railroad line, and in this area is kind of really where most of the action is going to take place. Yeah, and when like, so when Osterhaus goes forward. He, you know, he's fighting a little bit with those rebel cavalry, but they're taking off like a battle to hell. Um, and he can see towards the gap, and he's like, "We've got this. There, there's nothing there." Um, and you know, Ringgold Gap is described by uh, Private Jacob Early from the 99th Ohio as being a stinking secesh hole, but it was once a rich place with good buildings. And you know, Osterhaus is basically saying to Hooker, I can capture these wagons. I've got a good look at them. You know, so there's that feeding into this thing too for Hooker that is giving him the confidence that he thinks he, he can take he can take them. But that's not the way to the way it's gonna go. Like Osterhaus no, gets in and he's gonna run into Hiram Granberry and his Texans. Right. So but it's about eight o'clock in the morning and again you're going in peak going with, you know, with only one boot on, yeah. Longstreet famously said in the Gettysburg movie, okay? So Osterhaus is going to send that first brigade under a guy named, an Ohio guy, which, mm -hmm. you know, named Charles Woods. Uh, he's going to be, have his brigade's going to be guys from Illinois, Missouri, and, and Ohio. Yeah. They're going to move towards that gap, and they're going to begin to climb the slope of White Oak Mountain. Now, Woods was the guy, by the way, I don't know if you know this, Mary, he was the guy who famously... Um, was in charge of trying to resupply the troops at Fort Sumter. Yeah. The supplies them. That's yeah. what the same, the same yeah. guy, same Charles Woods. So his brigade is going to slowly kind of march up that, that slope, that mountain, completely unawares of what's waiting for them, which is the itchy triggered fingers of Granberry's Texas, like yeah. you mentioned. Now, the vanguard of Woods' brigade is the 13th Illinois, and they're going to be under the command of a guy named Frederick Partridge. He's a New Englander from, from uh, Norwich, Vermont, Mary, from Vermont. Nice. And after the war, he's going to be the U.S. consulate to, uh, to Bangkok, by the way. He's going, to, he's going to survive this. Spoiler alert, but he's going to make it. Partridge's men are, are basically walking into this trap, and the Rebs had to sit there and wait for them. They had to wait you know, for this 13th Illinois to get within range. Now, near Granberry's men are those two Napoleons we talked about yeah. under Goldthwaite. And they are loaded with canister and loaded with solid shot. And they're they're ready to go behind, behind these branches. They're hidden. Claiborne himself is standing there. And he's standing by his men. And he tells them, do not fire until I, not me, Claiborne, yeah. personally <laughs> give the word. So closer and closer come these Illinois troops, completely unaware of what's in front of them. They got to within 150 yards of these hidden rebs, completely oblivious that many were living their final minute of their lives yeah you know, think about that. that you don't always think about that yeah you know that's like these guys are coming up and they have no idea 
I mean, I'm sure Osterhaus has said to him, don't worry, this is going to be easy. But, you know, again, this goes back to how Claiborne has, he's hit his men. He's using the terrain to his advantage here. Um, you know, he's used the locals to his advantage as well as the rebel to kind of create, it's almost like a setting up this diversion to make them think we've got this. Yeah. They I mean, don't. There's nothing that they've seen to make them think there's going to be any trouble. Yeah. So here they come and they're creeping up the hill and Claiborne's sitting there saying, okay, wait, 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 wait. And then all of a sudden in his thick Irish accent, they said he jumped up and he clicked his heels. They said, and he yelled, now boys, give it to them. <laughs> And Goldface cannons explode right in the faces of these approaching Union guys from Illinois. Oh they said it were cut down in pure slaughter. A private who was in uh, Govan's 6th and 7th Arkansas was nearby. He watched this carnage. Um, uh, he jumped up and he yelled, by Joe, boys, we've killed them all. And Claiborne, who was nearby, he's going he, he hears him. He's going to yell at this private. He goes, if you don't get down, young man, you are liable to find that there is enough left for you to get the top of your head shot off. The guy <laughs> got right down. <laughs> you know? so, yes, sir. Get rid of it. You know? The boss <laughs> is funny. yelling at me. But this stunned man of the, of the 13th Illinois who survived this initial attack ran like hell yep. down that slope and hid, um, hid while those rebs got five or six more volleys off. Yeah, they the hid at the place where yeah, Isaac Job Farm was where they hid. Yeah, the colors fell to picked up again. Colonel Partridge, he's going to get hit, but he got shot in the hand. But the injury was enough to he had to relinquish command off of off, uh, from the regiment. Command's going to fall to a guy named Major Douglas Bushnell, who was killed almost immediately when a bullet hit a log ricochet right to his head. And that was the end for him. He didn't oh, make it. Oh, God. Captain Walter Blanchard is going to take command. And he's going to be, um, as soon as he gets command, a shell's going to take his knee off and he's going to be done. So it was one after the other. That, that's what these guys were dealing with. For the reference, the, the 13th Illinois spent the rest of the battle pinned down on the ground, hiding behind the railroad tracks. Yeah. Near that, right? Yeah, the Isaac so, Job farm. It's like 300 yards south of the depot and 100 yards um, west from the mouth of the gap. Yeah. And what this battle is going to do, it's almost like an echelon attack, but not really. The battle is going to slowly move north. Every single time. So you're going to have the, the, the 13th Illinois is going to get pushed back by the 6th, 10th, and the yep. 15th Texas, okay? And then they're gonna, then what's going to happen is they're going to fall back in, uh, along White Oak Mountain. The rest of Wood's Brigade is going to begin to advance up the slope just to the left of that 13th Illinois fought. These are mostly guys from Missouri. So Illinois gets pushed back. Here comes the Missourians. They're going to go on their left, and they're going to try to do it. Like Partridge's men... The rest of his brigade is going to slowly creep up that mountain, knowing, you know, not knowing what's up there. But what's up there is three more regiments of the Texans, which is the 17th and the 18th and the 24th Texas, yeah. all together um, in the 25th, too, for that matter. So there's really four who are going to be waiting for this for the 17th, the 29th, and the 31st Missouri right at that point. And what's going to happen is these guys, the same deal. They're going to fly back. They're going to get hit. They're going to fall back to the base of the mountain, and they're going to be pinned down, and they're staying there for the rest of this battle. Yeah. Now, these guys, again, were under the impression that there was going to be – resistance was going to be so light yeah. that this was the last thing Charles Woods ever, ever expected. So what happens? It shifts north again. So yeah. now we're continuing to go north. The battle's going to shift north up the mountain. This time, it's going to be the 76th Ohio. Yes. 
And, and they're going to be under the command of a guy named Major William, uh, William Warner. Yep. And he, he had the task to, to try to get around the unit, the, the rebel right. So they're, now they're going to try to flank them. So they know now that there's troops. Yep. And if they keep going north, they're going to get around them. Bad news for Warner, Mary. Bad yep. news for the Ohioans. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Their, their, you know, their attempt to sneak around Granbury's flank was spotted by Claiborne. Yes. So Claiborne's going to send a regiment of Lucius Polk's brigade to go chase them down. This yep. being the first Arkansas under a guy named John Colquitt. And they're going to basically race to the peak of White Oak Mountain. Yep. They, and the they first get one who gets there is going to be the lightning mm. mast. Colquitt's Arkansas. Arkansans? How do you say it? Arkansans. Kansans. Arkansans? Okay, whatever. Arkansans? I think I'm it's not Arkansans. Sure. I don't know. Somebody from Arkansas needs to let us know how they say that. But men from Arkansas, they're going to beat the 76th Ohio to the peak of, of this mountain. Again, that 350 feet above sea level peak. And maybe by about 10 minutes, they're going to beat them there. And the Arkansas men, as soon as they get there, um, they're going to fire almost exactly when they get there. You know, think of think a lot of um, little round pop. Yeah. That's how it was. The battle was so brutal near the top of White Oak Mountain. It degenerated to men throwing rocks at each other. Yeah, that's how bad. That's this thing exactly got. what had happened at Missionary Ridge too. And like the the 76th Ohio, when they get up there, they are going to suffer a 40 percent casualty rate. They had 200 men, and it's like 40 percent of them are are wiped out at you know up on White Oak Mountain. And Osterhaus, he's gonna like Claiborne. He's got reserves too, and he's got the the Iowans, he's going to send them in to help out the 76th Ohio, but it's not really going to do much. They're cut down too. this fourth, fourth Iowa. The 76 lost most of their colors. They kept the U S flag. And if you're yep. bored, you can Google 76 Ohio flag Ringgold. And there's a picture of it. And it, it is amazing that how it is ripped to shreds, but they yep. kept the U S flag. That's how brutal this was. So, so you, you mentioned that those Ohioans, this is not a James Williamson. Okay. Mm-hmm. His brigade is going to arrive. What these guys are going to basically do is kind of, they're going to provide relief for these Ohioans to escape. They're going to give them a little bit of cover. Williamson is going to, if you don't remember him, Mary, he received the Medal of Honor from the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou. We we talked about him, remember that, during Grant's Vicksburg campaign. Um, But the feds are having zero luck at this point getting anything past Claiborne. Everything that they're doing, they're getting, every move they're doing is getting checked every single time. It was right a boot this time <laughs> that Hooker's other division is going to arrive. This, of course, is the second division of the 12th Corps under our old friend John Geary. Yep. Now, remember, you know, Hooker impulsively attacked before all of his troops were on the field, and he's paying the price now. What he's doing is now he's attacking piecemeal, and it's a dumpster fire of an assault, and his men were melting away faster than a DQ blizzard on a hot summer day. <laughs> That's how fast they were going. Geary's First thing he's going to do, he's going to call up his first brigade, which was under Colonel Charles Candy, yeah. who was now commanded by a guy named Colonel William Creighton, who was also the regimental commander of the 7th Ohio. And Creighton, he's from Pittsburgh. He's an interesting fellow. I don't know if you know him, Mary. His 7th Ohio was called the Roosters. And before yeah. every single battle, Creighton would stand in front of his men and start crowing like a rooster to fire them up. Oh, my God. You want to give that a try? Not really, but what I'm remembering is when we were at that brewery um, with our friend Ski, and there was that rooster, you know, the place where Stonewall Jackson's arm was amputated. It's now a brewery, and there was that rooster. That's all I'm thinking about right now is that. Well, that's what he he did. I'm glad you didn't do it because it was a rhetorical question. 
but he he would stand up there crowing like a rooster to get his men going and fired them all up but they were the roosters now what's going to happen is geary's going to order creighton to once again try and get up white oak mountain and try to flank the rebels on their right this time he's going to go way north and try to get around this place that has a ravine in it he's going to continue to shoot way north now just like before claiborne's going to anticipate this is how this is going claiborne was ready Waiting for him were soldiers from Polk's Arkansas and Tennessee brigades. And so those Iowans get up there. They're going to get within 100, about 100 yards on the top of the mountain again when they're going to get ambushed again. Yep. So you're thinking, come on. You think you're far enough north and you get to the top and all of a sudden here come the Rebs. Bang, yep. bawling, well, they've right? Already gained, they've already gained the ground because Claiborne is like, I think, you know, and this shows – how good Claiborne is, is he's looking, I think what he does is he looks at terrain and he remembers back to other battles and mistakes that he's made. I don't know. I'm just kind of making an assumption here with this is my opinion, but I think he's like, okay, what did I do wrong here? Okay. I need to put these men in now. Cause I didn't do that before at this right. other battle. And I think, I think that's what he's doing. And he just knew how to move his men around brilliantly. Um, he did, but, but poor Crate, his men took a beat, took a beat down. And they, same as before, they took a full retreat down to the, the base of the mountain. You know, it's, uh, Creighton had a, a close friend of his named Lieutenant Orrin Crane, was a buddy of his. Crane got, Crane got killed at the top of the mountain. Crane himself, uh, Creighton himself learned about this, and he went up to go recover the body. Mm-hmm. Guess what happened? He didn't make it. He had shock of the heart. Oh my God. He, he died too. So it's a lot of sad stories that happen with this, but yeah. you, you lose Creighton and you lost Crane. Um, and, and this is how this battle was going. So with all these attempts at the gap of White Oak Mountain basically becoming completely futile, no chance, Geary has one more card to play. And that would be the Brigade of New Yorkers, commanded by their new commander, Mary, our old friend David Ireland, of all yep. people, yep, famous cool. of Culp's Hill, famous of, yep. of, you know, of, of a lot of the stuff we talked about. And Geary, for the most part, realizes that attacking this hill is, 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 a, is ridiculous. It's a waste of time. Ireland, by the way, is new to command of this brigade because his former boss, yep. George Sears Green, yeah, took a Green. bullet in the face. He got shot in the face at a, at, um, over Wahatchee. He's going to survive. Yep. And he's buried over here. Where he was born in 1801. He died in 1899. He only wanted to live in one century, yep. right? That's what he said. But yeah, like Ireland is the one when he comes in he and his men can see Claiborne's position and they realized how difficult it was going to be to take. Um, and Hooker apparently was like, I think I can take it, but Ireland's like, we can see this and we can see how difficult it is. It's, this, it's really the same brigade that, that was at Gettysburg. I'm talking to yeah. obviously the 137th New York, his old brigade, yeah. the 60th, the 78th, the 102nd, the 149th, yeah. the Syracuse men, the 149th. Yeah. They're going to be in charge, and what they're going to do is they're going to go directly into the gap. Mm-hmm. And they said that when they were they were moving forward, the sh- the fire was so bad it was like they had their heads down. They were like they're walking face first to a hailstorm. Oh Just imagine God. that's how they were walking. Yeah, they'd have to deal with those two Napoleons we talked about, Goldwaist guys at the mouth of the gap, as well as Daniel Gavan's Arkansas men, who were positioned within the gap directly waiting yeah. for them. This is the Civil War's version of the Battle of Thermopylae. If you've seen the movie 300, this is this is that movie. going right through the gap straight on. That's what these New Yorkers are doing. Ireland is going to is going to this is the waste of time. And what he's going to do, he's going to have his men lie on their stomachs and just try to fire and just just yeah. whatever. 
because he knew standing up and moving forward was absolute suicide. Mm-hmm. He, he, he knew Ireland was a smart, smart officer. Um, basically, what Ireland is going to do, though, by doing that is he's going to create kind of a stalemate. So now, instead of fighting and falling back, you've got this quagmire right in the yep. middle of Ringgold Gap. And it's what it's doing. It's buying time is what it's doing. Yeah. And the New Yorkers are holding their own. They're not, they're not getting anywhere, but they're, they're running the clock a little bit. It's about noon now on the 27th. And Hooker was close to finally getting that artillery support. They were still coming. They're almost there. He's also expecting another division of infantry under a guy named uh, Charles Croft from Terre Haute, Indiana. By the way, I don't know if you know this, Mary Croft was a famous Freemason from Indiana. I remember the Knights Templar, too. I think you've mentioned that before on so, here. There we go. Cool. So, they, so, so as Hooker is now, he's, Hooker is basically has his artillery now. He almost has his artillery. While this is going on, he's positioning them. That lull hits the battlefield yeah. and nothing's going on. Right at this moment, like in a movie, a messenger from William Hardy shows up at Claiborne. What does he tell him? He says, he's like, we've got the trains through. You guys can start pulling back. And Claiborne's like, good timing. So now he can withdraw in the face of the uh, face of the enemy, which yeah. is the hardest thing you can possibly do. There's a blow on the Union attack. So now he can get up and sneak out. So bef- but Claiborne's not stupid, though. No. He wants to make sure he's going to take those orders and he's going to run them by our, our, your, your buddy John C. Breckerich, mm-hmm. as well as the war child, John Wheeler from the uh, Joseph Wheeler from the Calvary. <laughs> he's going to say, What do you think of these? And they're both like, Yeah, let's get the hell out of here. That's yeah. exactly, you, got, you got the orders. Let's go. So, fortunately for Claiborne, as he's doing this, as he's pulling back, Hooker is not ready to attack us. He's no. positioning his, his pieces now, and he doesn't know Claiborne is his taken off. So, so it kind of all worked out for Claiborne at that very moment. Yeah. If Hooker had attacked at that very moment with everything, Claiborne would have got run over. Yeah. That's, that, that's, if, yeah. He, if, he, if, he had, if he had come in with Croft in the artillery, and he also said he had other guys too that he could have come back with guys like Cobb, him and those guys. Well, Sherman if was they, headed that way as well because Grant was like, I well, think. Well, he, was going, he was going to Grayville. He was, he was going yeah. to the But if they, if, if, if that very moment, if, if the entire, if, if Hooker threw everything at the kitchen sink at the gap, Claiborne yeah. would have got run the hell over. Yeah. It's still a three to four to one man ratio. But he, you know, by the time he does that, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and Claiborne's already pulled his skirmishers back now too. Yeah. And so by the time that Hooker realizes what the hell's going on, Claiborne has crossed the, the creek. He's burned the bridges. And and Hooker is kind of left holding his, holding a diaper in the rain. It's kind of what happens. Yeah, but you know? Hooker apparently said he could take it, but he didn't want to sacrifice the troops because he had a couple pieces of artillery come in, but they didn't really do much. And he was like, uh, it's just not worth it. And that's when Grant was kind of like, yeah, it's, it's not it, worth it, it anymore. You know, it's tough. To, you don't always want to fight when you don't know the numbers. And they yeah. they thought it was nothing. They realized that it wasn't. You well, know, they were going to send How the... I think Sherman was going to send Howard in at some point because he was like Howard and his guys were over ripping up railway somewhere near there. And mm-hmm. I guess Grant went to Sherman and said, do you have any guys you could send in? And he's like, well, Howard's over ripping up railways. <laughs> you could send him, him in. Yeah. It, it is that you know so just picture they're, they're they're over the water now they're burning the bridges and there's claiborne he's sitting on a horse yeah he's just sitting there watching the bridges burn and a rebel straggler is going to approach him and he tells the general general the battery didn't quite kill all of them this morning those two guns but what was left has been taught a lesson in good manners and claiborne actually laughed 
And he said, you're, he goes, you're right, young man. I'm proud of what you boys did today, but I don't think they'll bother us anymore this evening. No. He, he knows that Hooker's not yeah. coming. His division, Claiborne's division, is amazingly only lost about 200 guys. Yeah, that's, that's all. That's and good. so they, they're going to fall back into winter camp about halfway between Ringgold and Dalton, ironically, the place called Tunnel Hill. Yeah. Because that's how life is. There's yeah. more than one Tunnel and, Hill. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, like Tunnel Hill was kind of the, the bright spot if there was one for, for, the, mm-hmm. for the rebels during the battles for Chattanooga because Claiborne does so well there. That's one of the reasons why Bragg approached him. And I, you know, this is, I don't think it's going to be the last time that Claiborne's asked to save the army. And it wasn't the first to kind of quote unquote no. save the army. But I think this is his biggest moment in, save, in saving the army of Tennessee. Um, the other thing he does too is he, you know, once they fall back, he's going to light a bunch of fires the right. opposite way to what he's going to just in case that they do pursue because then you know, the union is going to go at those fires. They're not going to follow Claiborne the way that mm-hmm. he's actually going. So he's, he's thinking one step ahead, you know, Hooker for his, you know, his thing, despite having almost four to one men and a great, they didn't go all together at the same time. He's going to lose about 500 guys, yeah. which could have been a lot worse if you think about it. Yeah. But primarily due to his lack of patience in being fooled by what, what became a chess master in Patrick Claiborne. Yeah. Now Claiborne was right about his prediction. He told that that straggle that they weren't that they were safe and they weren't going to attack. Because as you mentioned before, Hooker's going to be advised by the big man, U.S. Grant. Yeah. Don't bother pursuing. No. You know, we're going to spend the rest of this winter encamped in this Ringgold. You know, there's a DQ here. It's a nice town. It's a bowling alley. Let's just let's just let's just stay here. Much to the delight of the Southern locals, Mary. Who oh. were the ones who told Claiborne, you know, tell them it was disheveled. They were hardcore Confederates, like you said. It yeah. was a, what do you say? It was a cesspool of, of, you know, whatever that quote you said was. Yeah. Ringgold is, is, is capital, you know, capital C Confederate. Yeah. But nobody talks and, about what the Union do here. Like we, you know, you and I both looked in Grant's memoirs, Sherman's memoirs, Howard's memoirs. They don't really talk about Ringgold Gap. Now, whether that's because it's such a tiny battle or, mm-hmm. or because it's one of those things like, uh, it didn't go well for us. But also, too, this is kind of like, I don't think it's on the same scale that Fredericksburg was with the looting and stuff. But uh, these guys don't make themselves many friends when they're they in Ringgold. Was one local, she was from Ringgold, was a woman. Her name was Ophelia Gordon. She's going to write of the Union occupation. Yankee rule is nothing to boast of. It does not take one person to make a trade. If you have an article they want, they'll tell you so and they'll take it. Yep. That's what she says. She went on to say, she's a mean-spirited woman, Mary, this one. She goes on to say, I've never hated a race of people before, and I do believe it would gladden my soul to see the last Yankee killed, man, woman, and child. Wow. A bitter party of one, your table's available. Oh. My goodness. So she that this is how the occupation was. And you, yeah. like you just said a second ago, people don't really talk about that. No. I don't think they were doing bad things. But the Confederate Army of, of Tennessee... You know, they're going to go through some changes now. We're not going to go into the whole thing. Yeah. But after this failed Chattanooga campaign, obviously, November 27th, Braxton Bragg is going to basically send a letter of resignation yeah, to in, James sort Bennett. of. Uh, yeah. And William Hardy is going to get it. And, you know, uh, command of the position. He's going to get the he's going to get the job. Yeah. Bragg being Bragg is basically going to blame his failure on his insubordinate generals going back to the whole campaign, his enemies within the army, he calls them. He wrote a friend and Bragg wrote. The whole clamor against me was by a few individuals of rank who are accentuated by one of two motives, ambition and revenge. Okay, speaking wow. of bitter. 
Now, Claiborne, for his for his matter, he was thrilled to see Bragg gone in the army. Yeah. And he and and Bragg now, I mean, was also writing positive things about Claiborne. Claiborne was getting all kinds of, of despite the Chattanooga campaign being a dumpster fire, everyone loved Claiborne and they started to call him what? The, oh, Stonewall the West. Stonewall the West at this point. Right. And he also gets it's, a special thanks from the Confederate Congress for what he did. I mean, Claiborne, when you look at the Chattanooga campaign, um, not so much Chick- not so much the Battle of Chickamauga. He's there. He's actually with Longstreet when they're throwing up those assaults at Thomas and his men that, you know, before they retreat back to Chattanooga. Um, and he does that night. He's Bragg tells him to do a night attack at Chickamauga, but but Chattanooga is really where he he's like the MVP if the Confederates could have one for this. Like Missionary Ridge, he's like working with what he's got. He ends up rolling rocks down at the men. He, you know, pantses them at Tunnel Hill. But then you have something like Ringgold Gap, which it's a small battle, but it could be one of Claiborne's best days in the Civil War for what he like he looks at the train, he looks at his men, he knows he's outnumbered, and he's like, okay, well, you know what? He, he said of what Bragg, the orders from Bragg, he said, I always obey orders. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. necessarily agree with them, and at the beginning he was kind of disobeying them, but in the end he, he always obeyed. And he saved, I think he saved Army of Tennessee that day. because mm-hmm. Oh, he, he absolutely know. did. He saved that army from complete destruction, yeah. and he would get these letters from the Confederate politicians praising him and Claiborne was kind of a quiet guy but it became kind of a joke in camp when they were yep. at Tunnel Hill <clears throat> but whenever somebody walked by Claiborne's tent he'd say come here come here I want to read you my read this letter and he would read his congratulation letters to all his men and you know it's like yes I know but that's what it was <clears throat> he was I mean he was very proud he was very proud of this whole thing so by the spring of 1864 going back to Ringgold yep. and, you know and as well as the entire area what's called Catoosa County that whole area yep. That population of 2,000 we talked about has swelled to 100,000 men all wearing blue. And they're all preparing to take a long walk to the sea over yes, there in Savannah. They are. Yep. And so the locals, after they leave, are left to pick up these pieces. And both, and really, what it's the end of the Chattanooga campaign. And it was is also the beginning of what is famously called Sherman's March to the Sea. Yep. And guess what? They both happen in the same exact place, Ringgold, Georgia. Yep. That's yeah. There's, um, there's a marker there for beginning of Atlanta campaign, which is also, I mean, you talk to some of the locals there, they're, they'll say this is the beginning of the March. The sea is right here in, in Ringgold. That's also where the uh, Claiborne statue is, which I think somebody had a sense of humor to put it next to the Atlanta campaign because. On fact, but that statue, yeah. Roy Tunnison made that statue. Mm-hmm. He's also the same guy who made the friend to friend Masonic monument in Gettysburg. That is so, well, that, that's very fitting considering Cl- Claiborne was a Freemason, a very high. He certainly high was. Up in he the, certainly was. High up in the craft, right? It was. But I think at the, at the end of the day, what this does is we talked a lot about we talked a lot about these, some of these battles that maybe don't get the credit. I mean, certainly the Battle of Ringgold Gap is, is certainly the, the end of the Chattanooga campaign. It doesn't pair in comparison to Chickamauga or certainly Chattanooga. Yeah. But it's similar to what Lou Wallace did in Monocacy. It is. Right? Yep. Where he sacrificed basically a division, in his mind anyway, to provide that necessary speed bump to let the army escape. Now, it was a little different because he, was, he wasn't stopping anybody from getting anywhere. He was stopping yep. from getting the army. But at the end of the day, what he did is is the army of the of, of Tennessee, which had a lot more a lot more brutal days in their future. Atlanta, Franklin, yeah. they had a lot of things in their future coming with different different commanders. He let them fight for another day, and what more importantly, what he did is he showed that impulsive Irishman 
who was very, I don't want to say irresponsible as Shiloh, but yeah. he was immature as Shiloh. Yeah. And he learned. We talk about a lot of other generals who don't learn. They mm-hmm. are what they are. What you get is what you get. Yeah. He evolved. And the Shiloh version of Claiborne is not the same guy as the Ringgold version of, of Claiborne. No. And what he did is he ultimately saved lives. He only lost 200. But the Union only lost 500 or 1,400 too. So it, it was as the battle went up White Oak Mountain, they fell back. They didn't pursue. They just stayed in their defense and they didn't get aggressive. Unlike Hooker, Claiborne did not get impulsive. No. And that's what saved him. No, that's the one thing about Claiborne is, you know, you, you look at him at Shiloh and he's very impulsive. He's the one that nearly gives away the position of the, the Confederates a few days before the battle. But then he falls back. But then he, you know, he starts recognizing stuff like, oh, if I did this differently. And I mean, yeah, like anybody, Claiborne has his bad days in the Civil War. But, you know, Ringgold Gap is one of those ones that kind of small battle, but it shows, I think, uh, the talent he had why he was probably one of the best, I mean, in my opinion, the best general in the Confederacy at this point. Just, you know, he he knew what he was doing and he he saved Army of Tennessee. Um, and he just, he followed orders. Like he was a, a soldier that just followed orders and that's what he did. And I mean, and ultimately really, you know, following orders as we see at Franklin, Tennessee. Now, you know, the, it's, no, this wrinkled gap happens on November the 27th, 1863. On November the mm-hmm. 30th, 1864, a year and three days later, Patrick Claiborne will be killed at the Battle of Franklin. Yeah. So at this point in this battle, he's got just over a year to live. Um, does. And he continued in that time to, I think, evolve as a commander to the point where he was telling, you know, I think, you know, allegedly tells Hooker, or not Hooker, sorry, um, Hood before Franklin this can't work. This is not good. But he goes no, in anyway. It and it, it costs him his life. No, it, it does. And that, that's, that's the story about him. And that, that's the story of Claiborne. So yeah. anyways, I, I think, I think Ringo Gap is one that definitely is worthy of being studied in, yes. in really detail because a lot of the, a lot of the superstars are there, the civil war superstars, you got, you got Hooker, uh, you've got part of Bragg's army. You've got David Ireland. If you're in, you've got, yeah. you've got Geary. If you're a Gettysburg person, there's a lot of familiar names with this. But the real star of this was Claiborne, and I think mm-hmm. anybody who studies this, you you can you you can see how he was probably the only guy out of all those 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 folks to really pull this thing off. You know, Alexander Stewart probably could have done this. No. There's a, there's a lot of other people that that Bragg could have picked. I don't um, even think Hardy could have done it. I I I think. But I mean, Bragg I mean, picked his best level, guy. Though. Yeah, yeah. I think. It, 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 the, the division guy. level really Stuart was going to be was would have been the realistic other choice, but but Claiborne mm-hmm. was going to be the guy. So I guess it goes to show if, if you know if if you're going to rip on Bragg, for example, you have to realize he did make the right call. Yeah. Especially with everything going on with with the stuff with with Claiborne. So yeah, with this I think Obi Wan, you're my only hope. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's a good thing to study. So I hope people will study this one. I think it was certainly a lot of fun to. To want to dust off the chestnuts here with with Ringo Gap because yeah. a lot of folks don't really look at this one. So what's coming up for us next, Mary? What's new? So we have to sit down and talk about what our next episode is going to be, but we definitely have more episodes ahead of us. Um, we have announced our books for 2023 for our book club. So just quickly, uh, for those who haven't heard yet, we are going to we have I think it's five books for next year. So we have Dr. Terry Alfred's In the Houses of Their Dead. Um, which is about Lincoln, um, the Lincoln family and the Booth family. We have uh, Tim Timothy B. Smith, so uh, Western Theater Tim Smith, The Real Horse Soldiers, 
We have Tom Huntington's uh, Main Roads to Gettysburg. We have Craig Simmons, and this is very appropriate for this episode, Stonewall the West, the biography of Patrick Claiborne. And we are also going to be having Lisa Samia's new poetry book, which is out in the spring, so it's not out just yet. All the other books are, are out, so you can buy them if you want. Uh, but Lisa Samia's new poetry book, um, or another in her series for Nameless and Faceless in the Civil War, will be our other book for 2023. So, so email us on the old email machine, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. Yeah. We'll get you on the list. Definitely do it. Uh, Cal's, Cal's uh, book club earlier tonight was a lot of fun. Yeah. And we'll, um, we've got some new stuff coming down the road. So anyway, Mary, any final words from you, Fincheroo? Well, thanks for bringing it as always. Always fun to talk about, um, you know, Wrinkled Gap, Pat Claiborne. It's always a good time to talk about that. It, it certainly is. So everyone, uh, Thanksgiving's coming up in a week or so. So uh, people are starting to get in there. That holiday mood, I cannot believe it's almost the end of the year. It's almost the end of November. So yeah. off we go. A happy um, Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, if we don't, I'm sure, yeah, because we're, we're doing our live next Monday oh, yeah. night. Ba- live will be no- Monday night, and then, um, so, <laughs> we're not going to be having a roundtable in November, but we will be having one, actually, we still are, November 30th. I thought we were. Yeah, we are, November 30th, right? The last day of November. It's like you don't even listen. Yeah, oh my God, ba- Anniversary of Battle of Franklin, I think, is our... <laughs> anyway. Is our roundtable, there we go. Yep, so... All right, so... So yeah. live, live on Monday, roundtable, I believe the 30th we're going to talk yeah. about. And then next month, we'll be back at the book club again, talk with Eric Schleinlein, Dim White Light, and then we'll be back into 2023, as they say. Yeah. So off we go, Mary. Again, the pleasure, as always, is always yours. And everyone have a great rest of the week. Finish up strong. Have a great weekend. We will talk to you all on the other side. See you all later. Bye. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-